0: Hebrews 6. Now, it indicated that if a right understanding is to be had of the epistles of the Hebrews and the historical parallels are We're actually accurate. Any pursuit of Hebrews in an exegetical manner without observing the historical parallel is more hysterical than anything else. Hebrews chapter 6, then we've come up to in our last lesson, pointing to the emphasis <coughs> of the entrance of the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. There was in chapter four a rest that awaited them. There was in chapter five, the priest that preceded them. And in chapter six, the warning as the failing to enter into that rest. By the way, the epistle of Hebrews is an epistle of warning. It's abundant with warning. Therefore leaving, verse one, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of the Messiah, let us go on under perfection. Remember this is written in Hebrews. So the emphasis is on leaving the first principles the weak and the beggarly elements of the apostle Paul refers to it in the epistle to the Galatians which is its gentile counterpart and let's go on unto perfection or unto full age we noted that the word translated perfection in 6.1 is the same word translated full age in 5.14 the emphasis then is to move away from being a minor babyhood if you would but properly being a minor as is spoken to in 5.13 and grow on, grow on to maturity or to sonship, which is addressed in 5 14 and 6 1. So let's go on unto full age, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism or washings, if you would, again making reference to Old Testament uh, ceremony laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and this will we do. If God permit, we indicated in our lesson last week that when the children of Israel came up to Kadesh Barnea, sent the twelve spies in. came back with an evil report. two with a good report, the people of Israel had their hearts turned away. They refused to enter the land. God pronounced judgment on them. The next morning they got up. Moses told them what judgment he pronounced on them is that he would give them a day for. I'm sorry, a year for. then they began to repent. They said, Oh, we sinned against the Lord. We will go up and possess the land. And Moses said, Don't go. God is not among you. They attempted to go anyhow, but God would not permit them to repent. and that's the emphasis of verse 3. This will we do if God permits. And he goes on in the next verses to emphasize their enlightenment, their having partaken in the Holy Spirit, their having... Seen the evidence of the power of God, the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and yet they had fallen away, apostatized is the word. As a matter of fact, and it was Paul said then impossible to renew them again, not unto justification, for that is not the issue, not unto salvation, for they would never entered into it, but rather unto repentance. Salvation is not going to heaven; it's heaven coming to us. And as we emphasize further with the man Moses. He's epitomized, you all stand with me, I'm stirring up your pure minds by way of remembrance. You still there? And the man Moses has been used as an example of this action in verse 6. Since at the mouth, uh, I'm sorry, at the uh, um, second visitation to the rock, Moses was commanded, <coughs> rather than smite like the rock, as he did two years earlier, recorded in Exodus 17, he is commanded to what? speak to the rock, recorded in Numbers chapter 20, and Moses was angry uh, with Israel, and it went ill with Moses for their sake, Psalm 106 tells us, as well as Deuteronomy 3, so Moses, rather than speaking to the rock, he smote the rock, and in so doing, he did what? Crucified the Son of God of Christ and put him to an open chain. He had already been crucified as a smiting the rock two years earlier. That did not need to be repeated. Christ died once for the sinful world, Hebrews chapter ten. Now he comes up the second time to speak to the rock. As Christ is the exalted one at the right hand of the Father, and I think we indicated to you then that the second word translated rock is the word for elevated place. It addresses the exalted Christ. But rather than speaking to the rock, Moses smote the rock, and in so doing fulfilled the words of verse six. Put Christ to an open scene and for that reason, you'll recall, Moses was refused entrance into the land. And then, one further thing, we also noted that Moses also attempted to repent of that deed recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 3. He said, I besought the Lord that he would let me go in and see this good land, which uh, he was going to cause Israel to possess. And God said, Speak to me no more of this matter. He said, "I want to. I'm going to take you up to Piz again. You can look to the east, the west, and north, and south, and observe what I'm going to give, But you will not enter that land." But he did get into it, didn't he? That's the way a lot of believers are. Now, moving to move into the salvation of God, we're going to have to die to get there, and the salvation of God then is the. Uh, Resurrection life of Jesus Christ given to His people now. All right. All that said, any questions? provoke now before we go on. All right. Psalm two, verse seven. For the earth. Now he's going to move away from the history of Israel, and he's going to drop in another illustration to reemphasize uh, what he has just said. But he's going to use illustrations which are abundant, as a matter of fact, throughout the rest of the scripture. This having to do with the earth, the rain, and the fruit it brings forth. <laughs> Verse 7. For the earth which brings in the rain, you observe the word for as a conjunction, this bringing this is another illustration. For the earth which brings in the rain that come often upon it, and bringeth forth herbs fit for them by whom it is tilled, receives blessings from God. But that which brings <laughs> thorns and briars is rejected is not in the whose end is to be burned. Now, that word burned will often get a lot of poor believers back into the lake of fire after God has already delivered them. Now, let's follow something here, if we might, please, and then we'll see another illustration that parallels it. First of all, we have the earth. Will you permit another legitimate word in this uh, uh, translation? The land. Yes, sir. Oh, oh. All right. Okay, doke. Thank you, brother. First of all, the word land. Now, what is the land, or the earth, if you would, indicative of in the Scripture? Anyone want to share with it? What does it point to? We're talking about the people of God now. You can put it in the more broad term. Yes, ma'am. The believer. Yes, he is the garden of the Lord. It points particularly to the good ground of Matthew chapter 13. The ground as a whole is people. Uh, The earth or the field is the world. He's addressing people in that particular context. And then he narrows down on that one portion of it, that fourth part, if you would, which brought forth some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. It points to the garden of the Lord. Further, in 1 Corinthians, and this I think is a defining passage, so I'll put it in here. 1 Corinthians 3.9, the Apostle Paul says, Ye are God's tilled ground. Husbandry, I think, it's translated in King James. Ye are God's tilled ground. You see that same emphasis throughout the Song of Solomon where the believer is to be found as the garden of the Lord. In the first portion, he is the spring garden. In the second portion he, portion, he is the summer garden. And finally, he is the fall garden or the reproducing garden. The winter garden is never addressed in the Song. They are God's frozen assets, and he's not dealing with that. So 1 Corinthians 3, nine points, to the believer as the garden of the Lord. And he's planting a garden in the heart of the child of God and he's producing a crop. Now the crop is produced by the seed of the word of God that's sown into that field. So the land here or the earth points to the believer, the individual believer. Any questions about that? that will lose you somewhere. All right, the second portion of this little parable that he's giving addresses the rain. The earth drinks in the rain which comes oft upon it. And it receives a blessing, or uh, produces, I'm sorry, give it to me. Bringeth forth herbs fit for him by whom it is dressed. What's the rain address? All right, didn't think that'd be too difficult. The drain, rain addresses the water of the Holy Spirit. He bringeth in the book of Joel, for example, the former rain and the latter rain moderately. He's pointing to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his people that waters the earth and refreshes the ground. Waters us, refreshes us, and we bring uh, forth the crop. So the rain addresses the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to come to the herb. Herb, if you would. I want to make a distinction here, and though this word does not occur in this this text for a very good reason, I want to make a, a contrast, if I might. The distinction between an herb and a fruit An herb is that, how shall I say, crop whose seed is external, and a, a fruit is that crop whose seed is internal. For example, at the creation of God said, the fruit whose seed is in itself, describing such things as apples and bananas and pears and so forth. They have the seeds on the inside. Now, fruit addresses the fruit of the spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit points to an internal quality which is made manifest in external character. That's fruit. It is an internal quality, seed is in itself, which is manifest in external character. Now, herb is in contrast to that. The seed of the herb is on the outside. It's always visible. And the herbs address, rather, the uh, gifts of the Spirit as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the spirit are in a constantly high profile visible situation do you follow us with that now the reason he is addressing herbs here and not fruit is because the issue of the epistle to the hebrews is coming into the land and seeing the demonstration of the power of god it is a visible thing that he's been talking about it is the salvation of god brought upon his people for example When Peter found it necessary to explain to those that were about on the day of Pentecost what it was that happened on the day of Pentecost, he wasn't explaining an internal work. He was explaining an external work. He didn't have to explain to anybody Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. That was an internal work. But he did have to explain to them what happened on the day of Pentecost because it was demonstrated outwardly. Are you following us? So that when they said, these men are drunk with, uh, how you say that stuff again? Wine. New wine, yes. These men are drunk with new wine. He was talking about something that came forth from them externally. There is the herb. So that when the apostle then comes to chapter 6 and he's addressing their moving into the land of Canaan, getting away from the weak and the beggarly elements, he's pointing the way away from those things which do not demonstrate the power of God and encouraging them to enter on into those things which do demonstrate the power of God. You observe that the problems that they had outside of the land was with themselves, and after they entered into the land, then they began to see the defeat of the enemies of the Lord. It was the outward demonstration of the power of God. Now that's why the word herb then is used. What do I do with that? Herb addresses the gifts of the Spirit or the demonstration of His power. Whereas the fruit addresses the character of the spirit. How do you spell character? H-A-R? All right. You can't read it anyhow, can you? That word, by the way, character, is a transliteration of the Greek word character, which occurs in Hebrews chapter 1 when the scripture tells us he is the expressed image of his person. That's the word character. It's the only time it occurs. In a new testament scripture that interesting word all right points to something that's internal a quality of life that is internal the fruit of the spirit all right any questions about that so he's pointing to the herb of the field now we move on <coughs> it brings forth herbs fit for him that of course is obviously the father by whom it is tilled, and it receives blessing from god i feel a bunny pass go with me to song of solomon very quickly Song of Solomon, chapter 4, and we'll pick up, please, from verse 8 and skip a little. No, we won't either. We'll start with verse 9. The Song 4-9. It's on page 707 in knew New Schofield. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes and with one chain of thine neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine. The sister, the spouse, is, of course, addressing the Shulamite, who is the bride-to-be, the bride-elect, if you would, of the uh, shepherd in the Song of Solomon. And if you're not familiar with the backdrop of the song, it's a remarkable love story between Christ and His church in a marvelous metaphor. This shepherd is Solomon. And you recall the Scripture says that concerning Solomon that... uh, I'm sorry, Solomon said that one man in a thousand have I found, but one woman in a thousand have I not found. And he had 700 wives, and as the little girl said, 300 cucumber vines, and out of all of those, he did not find one woman that was the kind of woman that would love him for what he was and not for what he had. So he left them all, and he disguised himself as a shepherd, and that's what's pointed to in this book. He disguised himself as a shepherd, and he went out then into the land of Israel as a shepherd, not as a king, to find a girl that would love him for what he was and not for what he had. And he found this Shulamite girl. And during the whole course of their courtship, she thinks he's a shepherd when he's really a king. Tell me, how did the Lord Jesus manifest himself to us? As a shepherd or as a king? Oh, as a shepherd? Now, we're going to find him king, to be sure. But he came to us in the world and he wooed us as a shepherd, not as a king. He did not command our love. He earned our love. Are we there? All right. So the same is happening in the Psalms. And the whole course of this book is His planting a garden in her heart and producing a crop of something in her that is acceptable to Him. As Paul would put it, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. That's God planting His crop and producing something in us that is acceptable to Him. All right, now so let's say this. Will you watch please from verse 11? Thy lips, O my spouse, drop like the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the scent of thy garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain field. There's the garden with its in- internal fountain. That points to John chapter 4. Well of uh, living water springing up into everlasting life. A lot of parallels there, do of time for them. Now, from verse 13 on, I want you to follow something. What is the enumeration of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty-two and 23. How many of them? Nine of them. All right. Well, let's have a look see. Verse 13. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruit, henna and spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the cheap spices. How many did you count? Nine, precisely. Kind of gives you the idea God wrote the book, doesn't it? And the nine gifts of the Spirit can be divided in Galatians chapter 5 into three sets of categories of three each: Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, faith, meekness. Thank you, yes, there's another word for that. Self-control, I can't get that out. Now, those three, uh, I'm sorry, these nine also break down into sets of three. The uh, pomegranate, tenon, spikenard. Let me say a quick word about this. These first three were grown as food, uh, how shall I say, nourishing agents. May I parallel that with love, joy, and peace? They are in the body of Christ food, nourishing agents. Yes? The second category of three, saffron, calamus, and cinnamon, these were used for medicines. They were healing agents. Would you agree that long suffering and gentleness and goodness heal? In the body of Christ. And then the last three, frankincense, myrrh, and alice, these were perfumes. They were grown and used for perfumes. And the last three, faith, meekness, and self-control. Don't they smell good on people? So, there's the garden of the Lord that's growing His fruit. Do we follow that? There is the character. All right. Now, back to Hebrews 6. I'm so sorry for that digression. Hebrews 6. It brings forth herbs, in this case, which are emphasizing the gifts of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Spirit, uh, fit for them by whom it is tilled, and it receives blessing from God. So God is blessing that crop as it is produced and functioning in accordance with His purpose. Now we come to the problem that Paul is addressing here. But that ground of His, which brings forth thorns and briars, is rejected, it is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. The Greek word you have translated rejected here is a word you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's have a look over there. Let me get the specific verse. 1 Corinthians 9, and the Apostle Paul is speaking in this context to one of the uh, um, crowns, and I'll start from verse 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. It's one of the five crowns of reward given to the child of God in New Testament Scripture. I therefore so run, not as one, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Now the apostle is appealing to the Grecian and Roman games, is he not? To the athletic contest, as he so often does. Verse 27, but I keep under my body, or I keep my body in control, if you would, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Verse 27. Now the word castaway here is the same Greek word that you have translated rejected in Hebrews chapter 6. And the emphasis is not on abandonment, but rather the emphasis is on a no longer useful individual. Paul said, I keep my body under so I don't cease to be useful in the purposes of God. May I once again stir up your pure minds by way of remembering? Some of you basketball players, if you're out there with the team playing on the court and you commit in the course of the game five fouls, what happens to you? What? You get benched. Yes. You're out of the game. Tell me something. Are you off the team? Oh no. You're just out of the game. That's what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, "I keep my body under control." So I don't get put off the, or I'm sorry, put out of the game, out of the contest. That's the word I'm after. So I don't get put out of the contest. Paul is again in Galatians, again, that is the Gentile counterpart of Hebrews, using a like analogy when he says that the Galatians ran well who hindered them. The word translated hinder there means to cut out of your course. He said you ran well. He was having the same problems with them that he had with the Hebrews. He said you ran well, but somebody cut you out of your lane. You understand what he was talking about, don't you? And you map out those uh, tracks, thank you. You map out that track and it's, it's lamed out and each runner is in his lane and they are staggered in terms of distance for the curves, and they take off out in those lanes in their 440 yard dash or whatever 400 meter dash and in the course of their running, if one man in this lane cuts over and pushes this fellow out of his lane, it disqualifies him. And Paul said, "You ran well. Who cut you out of your lane?" He is continually appealing to those games, and here he's doing the same thing. Then, in Hebrews, he's saying, "You've been, you are uh, in danger of being put on the bench, not off the team, but out of the game." You still following me? You sure you're there? All right, let's get back over there then, to Hebrews. All right, I'm going to write that on here, rejected, how do you spell benched, is that close enough? All right, sidelined if you would, so that which bears thorns and briars, now the thorns and briars point to what is produced by the flesh which is associated with this world. That which produces thorns and briars is rejected or benched or sidelined. It is near unto cursing, nigh unto cursing. The Apostle Peter uses an interesting expression in this connection. Does anyone remember what it is? Basically saying the same thing. If the righteous scarcely be saved. Oh my. Nigh unto cursing. Do you see that flavor? Nigh under cursing. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? Job said again, they're saved by the skin of their teeth. A lot of believers are going to get saved by the skin of their teeth. He didn't say, if the saved scarcely be saved, And once again, beloved, I am leaning heavily upon your having learned this lesson well, that there is a profound and necessary distinction to be made in the New Testament Scripture between the word justified and the word saved. And if we don't see that distinction, we really run aground with a lot of New Testament revelation. Justification is the righteousness of God. Salvation is the power of God. We have righteousness by the blood of Christ. We have power by the resurrection of Christ. A lot of believers are walking in justification. They know absolutely nothing about experiential salvation. And like Moses, a lot of them are going to have to die to get saved. Thus Peter said, now, or Paul rather, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Paul, on the one hand, addresses salvation immediate. If thou shalt confess to thy mouth, Jesus to be Lord, believe in thine heart, God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be what? Saved. Not justified, saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, justification, same Greek word. With the heart, man believes unto justification, and that's all you need to go to heaven. that's That's all Abraham had, that's right. That's all the, what's his name, the king over there? David had. Hello? But with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you need to go to heaven. You add anything, you got to that, and you've defiled it. Some of that polluted self-righteousness, some of that filthy rags that we so delight in and got aboard. May I be forgiven for saying it again? It isn't our sin that's troubling God anymore. He sent that to the cross. It's our righteousness. It's wretched. Now where was I when I started preaching? If the righteous, not the saved, if the righteous scarcely be saved now is our salvation near when we believe where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear it is nigh unto cursing we'll illustrate that more uh, fully in a moment its end is to be burned now that's where we stick that believer back in hell when we read that word burned. well let me suggest something to you beloved that everything up to this time has been a metaphor how is it all of a sudden that this is not a metaphor it's real fire are you there you sure? How many of you are here this morning? Uh, I'm missing some of you. The land is a metaphor. The rain is a metaphor. The herb is a metaphor. The rejected is a metaphor. How come the fire burning is all of a sudden real fire? It's still a metaphor. Be consistent. And what does the fire address? Go with me, please, to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 3 again. I want to pick up the context and go on. Uh, Another quick word about this Bema seat. This goes without saying, but stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance in case somebody is not recollecting this. The term Bema as its translated judgment seat in the New Testament was a reference to that place of judgment. Again, those of you who saw the film, uh, thank you, Ben-Hur will remember that when Ben-Hur had won the chariot race, he came up before this seat of judgment. And there was a laurel wreath of victory placed on his head. Now that seat of judgment he came before was the bema. And he came there to be rewarded for victory. And every believer is coming before that bema to be rewarded for victory. It's not a place where God brings up all those lousy things you've done. It's a place where you're going to be rewarded for victory. And Paul said, Some shall suffer loss, yet he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. It's the place where the five crowns Stephanos, laurel wreaths of victory, are handed out. Never in the New Testament scripture is a believer ever seen wearing a diadem. There are only two people, as a matter of fact, in the word of God that ever wear a diadem, Christ and the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes on the scene wearing 10 diadems. Christ comes on the scene wearing many diadems. The idea being innumerable. But the believer is rewarded with Stephanos, the wreath of victory. And it points to the areas of his faithfulness in the responsibilities that God gave to him, not to his success, but to his faithfulness. God couldn't care less if you're successful. He's successful anyhow. What he does care about is, if, are you faithful? Are you going to bloom where you're planted? Where did I lead you? 1 Corinthians 3. All right. So this judgment seat then is addressed here. 1 Corinthians 3. It's pointed to specifically 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to read on down please i read verse 15 i want to read it again if any man's work shall be burned he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire remember you don't burn the field to destroy the field you burn the field to get rid of the junk know ye not that ye are the temple of god and that the spirit of god dwelleth in you if any man defile the temple of god him shall god defile if any man corrupt the temple of god him shall god corrupt it's the same greek word they are not different greek words for the temple of god is holy which temple ye are? Now, for time's sake, allow me to move on over, please, to chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, again, chapter divisions in the Scripture are not inspired, and sometimes they fall in unfortunate places, and I think this is one of them. Since the apostle is continuing his discourse on the judgment seat of Christ and the importance to be faithful in the place God put you. 4.1, 1 Corinthians. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ. And by the way, the word minister has the idea of a ship's crew and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found successful. Oh, some of you are reading with me. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's day. The Greek word is hemera, not krinos. It is day properly, not judgment. There are four prophetic days in Scripture, day of man, day of Christ, day of the Lord, and the day of God. For with me is the very small thing that I should be judged of a viewer of man's day. We've been in man's day since man went into the God business. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. May I stop you there for a moment. Again, forgive the repetition, but how many of you would like to have your hidden counsels made manifest right now before everybody? Not a very pleasant thought, is it? Well, I doubt if it'd be a very pleasant thought in that day either, had it not been for the fire. But that's why the fire is there, to burn up the junk. May I read on? Then shall every man have praise of God. God's going to have something good to say about every believer. In that day, even the ones you can't find anything good to say about now, God's going to find something good to say about in that day. So He says, "Judge nothing before the time." You say, "Well, I know a brother has been nothing but a thorn in the flesh." To everything that God ever's done. Well, probably when He comes into His presence in that day, God will thank Him for being a good thorn, because a lot of people need thorns. And in the house of any great man, there are vessels unto honor and there are vessels unto dishonor, and they're all very useful, very necessary. Some just serve differently than do others. I feel a bunny pat there too, but I'm not going to take that. Any questions or comments? None. You all worry me when you're that way, you know that? All right, the Lord willing, next week we have two courses. He's giving us grace to minister here uh, that we'll have to look at but I think Hebrews 10 needs to be looked at. I'd like to take a whole study of the epistle of the Hebrews, but Hebrews 10 is gonna to have to be looked at, and so we'll take a little time with that, and then we wanna talk about, and I'm, I confess that I'm quite anxious for this. Uh, I, I want to talk about the uh, issue of the name in the book. Uh, a brother, am I allowed to stick this in right here? I got a couple of minutes yet. A brother uh, said to me in the class at the college in San Marcos the other night, he said, Brother Lamb, Um, will you please uh, tell us something about over there in Revelation 3 where he says he'll blot our name out. He did not. But why is it every time we approach a text like that we always reverse it? We always do. He said just the opposite. He said I will not blot your name out. And as a matter of fact, it's in a double negative in the Greek. I will not, I will not blot your name out. Why is it we always reverse it? Because we are bound and determined that we're going to earn our way to heaven. Just bound and determined we will in spite of the gospel. Father, we thank you that it is finished in that name. Amen.